Hey, good morning, Central. So great to be with you in this capacity this morning. And I'm grateful that Craig took a few moments to walk you through why we're doing the teaching the way we're doing it this morning. And as Craig mentioned, uh, this teaching has been laid on my heart for some time. And I'm thrilled to be able to do this with you this morning as we look at the older son today from Luke chapter 15. So I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. And as you are finding Luke 15, uh, I want to tell you a quick story story about when I was living in Jerusalem. I got to study with an ordained rabbi who has specialized in classical rabbinic literature. Some of you know that, Mishnah, Tosefta, the Talmuds. And among classical rabbinic literature, we have from just before the time of Jesus, during the time of Jesus, and just after the time of Jesus, roughly 4,000 parables. Uh, Jesus didn't invent the parable. It was a rabbinic teaching practice that he employed in his ministry as well. And my friend Rabbi Moshe has studied many, many of these parables and understands the parables of the ancient rabbis better than anybody else I've ever met. And one of the coolest things that he has said to me on multiple occasions is he'll say to me, Brad, uh, you know I'm not a Messianic Jew. I don't affirm that Jesus is the Messiah. But let me tell you something. The ancient rabbis couldn't hold a candle to telling the parable stories they did as Jesus did. He just said Jesus' parables are absolutely mind-boggling because there's so many pieces to it. It's so explosive. There's like all of these layerings within the parables. And most notably among these, the parable of the prodigal son. And over the last couple of weeks with Craig tackling the younger son and me tackling the father last week, you have seen just how explosive this parable is. And you've begun to see how it's layered. Well, that layering is going to continue this morning as we explore the character of the older son. And like last week we talked about, we were gonna engage two major moments with the father. Today, we're going to engage two major moments with the older son it's himself. And so uh, let's begin in a good place, the beginning of the parable, Luke 15, verse uh, 11 goes like this. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And there you have moment one. Most of you are thinking, wait a minute. Like, where's the older brother in this moment? Oh, he's there, all right. Let me read the last part of what I just read again. So he, the father, divided his property between them. The younger son got his inheritance. The older son got his inheritance. They both got their inheritance. Now, the older son would have been entitled to a, a double portion, a double share. And since he only has one brother, he got two thirds of the estate. He got his inheritance, just as the younger brother did. And yet what's absolutely astounding in this moment and something the entire audience would have caught on is that the older son remains silent. As we've explored these last couple of weeks for the younger son to ask his father for the inheritance was like saying to his father, I wish you were dead. At this moment, we expect the older brother to go, father, don't listen to what he is saying. He doesn't really mean it. You're, you're not gonna divide the inheritance. I, I will not stand for you doing that. This is an honor and shame culture. Even if the older brother hates his younger brother, just for the honor of his father, he will speak out in protest and yet he remains silent. What's more is that anytime you have two parties that are fractured, is that in the Middle East, both then and today, the expectation is for a third party to step in. And that third party serves as what's known as the role of the reconciler. And that person is chosen based on the closeness that they have to both of the fractured parties. And obviously in this story, it's the older brother. He's supposed to step in as the role of the reconciler. He's supposed to try to make things right. But because of his own fractured relationship with his father, he doesn't step in. That is what his silence is communicating. 
Now, those who are listening to this parable in this moment would understand this about the older son. We could just say this, that Jesus's listeners would have made the connection that although the older son stayed, he was just as guilty as the younger son who left. The fact that the older son doesn't speak up is disgraceful to his father. He disgraces his father. He shames his father by remaining silent. And that is moment one with the older son. And it's precisely what we understand in this moment one that makes moment two also explosive and very defiant. Well, in the interim between those two moments, as you know, if you've been following the last couple weeks or if you know this story well, the younger son takes his inheritance. He, um, in a sense, liquefies it, gets the, the money, heads off to a distant country, squanders his wealth on what the text tells us, wild living. He comes to a real low place. He realizes, I just gotta go home. My father can at least give me food. He's got an agenda going home. He wants to be a hired servant. He wants to earn his way back into the father's household. And he arrives on the scene and the father sees him and the father goes running out, shaming himself for the purpose of wrapping his arms around the boy to take on his younger son's shame to pull him in tight and to let the rest of the community that has gathered recognize that the father is accepting his son back. He gives the son the best robe in this moment, the father's robe. The father clothes his younger son in, in his own righteousness, in his own acceptance. He gives him a ring. He gives him sandals on his feet. He restores him to sonship. And in the midst of all of this, repentance has set in for the younger son, and he just says, Father, I am unworthy. And as we talk, the the father, God, is always about making the unworthy worthy. Hence the robe, the ring, the sandals. And then the last thing the father says is, okay, get get the fattened calf. Let's, Let's kill this thing and let's celebrate. Let's have a party and celebrate that my younger son has come home. And now we have moment two with the older brother. Notice with me, Verse 25, while the older son was in the field, uh, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on here? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Okay, let's pause for a quick moment. The older son is out in the field. The way Jesus tells the story is a bit unrealistic that the older son would have no clue what is going on, and yet the entire village knows what's going on. Well, it's a story, and Jesus is telling the story in a way to help us to see just how disconnected the older son is to the community, to the family, and to his own father. So he gets news about what's going on, and then this is how he responds, verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He refuses to go in. He finds out the news and he gets upset. Now, real, real quickly, uh, if the older son has received his inheritance, which he has, um, and the father has basically handed over everything to the older son, uh, the calf that the father just had killed to celebrate the younger son coming home, uh, who did that belong to? <laughs> oh yeah, the older son. The generosity of the father comes at the older son's expense. And the older son is ripped. Now, yes, he's a little bit ripped about the calf, But it goes much deeper than that. He's really ripped about the kind of grace that his father is showing to his younger brother. Which, by the way, I don't know if you caught that, but when he's speaking to the father, he says in verse 30, but when this son of yours, (laughs) he doesn't even want to acknowledge his brother anymore. He says to the father, this son of yours, you can see and hear and feel the vitriol that the young older son has against his younger brother. But what we also see here is the fractured relationship of the father coming to the forefront. Notice again, 
The older son, verse 28, became angry and refused to go in. In this moment, you have to imagine that like the older son is out there and the whole community is now privy to what's going on. And it's like the whole community is looking out to the older son and the older son is looking in and he's refusing to get to the party. Now, the older son has been given everything. He's now been in partnership with his father for the estate until the father dies. With a party like this, it is the patriarch of the family. It's the one who is responsible for providing for everyone, which is both the father and the older son. You play the host. That's a place of honor. And in honor and shame culture, everything you do either brings honor or shame. And for the older son to stay out and to not come in makes the family fracturedness, in a sense, amplified. That everybody recognizes because the son doesn't come in, like there's something fundamentally wrong between the brother and the younger brother and the brother and the father. And in a sense, by extension, the whole community and the whole family and the son stays out there and disgraces his father by not coming in. What's even more mind-boggling in this moment is what the father does. If the father leaves the party, that would be a disgraceful thing to do. And yet the father does that. Why? Because he loves his older son as well. And he seeks to have a conversation with him. And so the father leaves and disgraces himself to go have a conversation with the older son. And then how does that relationship or that conversation begin once the father arrives? Notice what the older son says. He says, look, <laughs> you go, what's, what's the problem with that? Uh, the problem is what doesn't come before it. Whenever you address your father, you would address him as sir or as father, to just jump into a conversation and not to address your father was a disgraceful and shameful thing to do. And the older son disgraces his father by not appropriately greeting him. And the older son goes on and he says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And then get these next two details. I've never disobeyed your orders first detail. And the second is this, verse 30. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. Squandered your property with prostitutes. Well, the prostitutes part, that's what we call new information. Uh, earlier on, we're told that he squandered his wealth and wild living, but it doesn't tell us specifically prostitutes. Now you can infer wild living might have prostitutes attached to it, but this is new information specifically giving us the detail of prostitutes. And what Jesus does on the lips of the older son right here and right now is absolutely brilliant. And we have to pause in the story to understand what Jesus is doing. And in order to understand what Jesus has just done by putting on the lips of the older son, I have never done anything wrong and he squandered your property with prostitutes, we have to gain an understanding of the context of this story. Jesus just doesn't tell this story out of the blue. There was an impetus for Jesus to tell this story. And for that, we gotta go to Luke 15, the chapter we're in, verses one and two. Notice what we read there. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law or the teachers of the Torah muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now real quick, let's define the parties who are around the table. Okay, here's a slide that just helps us to see who all is involved? We have tax collectors and sinners. Let's begin with the tax collectors. Who are they? They are Jewish people who are collecting taxes on behalf of Rome. As most of you know, the Romans are ruling the world at this time. And when you are a subjected people to a foreign empire like Rome, you have to give taxes. Tax collectors are Jewish people who are collecting taxes from other Jewish people to hand over to the foreign pagan oppressive empire of Rome. And as you can imagine, the religious Jewish people had a problem with this. Not only because Jews were collecting taxes, taking from other Jews to give to Rome, but everybody knew the tax collectors were taking more than what they were supposed to and pocketing it. 
And so the tax collectors were hated among the Jewish people. Uh, You have the sinners. These are just basically the people who have blown it. The people who are unclean, who are unrighteous, who haven't done things the right way. These are known as the sinners. And Jesus is sitting around having a meal with them. And there are others who are there as well, the Pharisees and the teachers of the Torah. These are the religious folks. These are those who are doing all the right things, who are saying all the right things, who believe that they have done nothing wrong, that everything they do is righteous before God. And they are looking in on this situation and they are irate with Jesus. Why? Well, notice what their muttering is. It's also the word grumbling here. You could say complaining. They say this, This man, talking about Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. The issue is Jesus is eating with them. And you go, what's what's the big deal with that? Well, in the ancient world and even in the Middle Eastern world today, you could have somebody who was like a patriarch, a dignified figure like Jesus here, who could feed any number of lesser people. Um, That person will just not eat with them. He can feed them. He can do a feast for them. He won't eat with them. Because if you eat with them, if you sit down and have a meal with them, that meal is a special sign of acceptance. The meal is a big deal. And because Jesus is accepting the tax collectors and the sinners, the religious folks have a major issue with this. And it is out of the fact that the Pharisees and the teachers of the Torah are upset with Jesus doing that, that Jesus goes, hey, let me tell you a story. By the way, if Jesus ever says, hey, let me tell you a story, you're busted. (laughs) Because Jesus only tells stories in context like that in order to make a point that will expose your position for the faulty nature that it is. Jesus is going to go after the Pharisees and the teachers of the Torah. And so he tells this story. And all of a sudden, when we look at the parties who are here, we can begin connecting the characters in the story to the parties around the table. So when it comes to the tax collectors and the sinners, you go, wait a minute, that's the younger son in the story. This is the one who has blown it, who hasn't done the righteous thing. And yet they are now coming back to God. And God is showing them grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness. And this is the younger son represented with the tax collectors and sinners. When it comes to the Pharisees and the teacher of the Torah, you go, oh my goodness, this is the older son. And maybe for some of us, we step back and we go, okay, but how do we know this is true? How do we know this is the older son? Well, again, what were those two details we just highlighted that Jesus put on the lips of the older son? I have never done anything wrong. That's the mentality of the Pharisees. That's the mentality of the teachers of the Torah. Now, now that you have been um, brought deeper into the story, you go, but wait a minute. Apparently they have done some things wrong. Like the older son didn't speak up when the younger son asked for his inheritance. He disgraced his father. He didn't enter into the role of the reconciler. He didn't enter into the party. He, he refused to go in. The father had to go out. He didn't address his father when he came out appropriately. You go, man, he's done a number of things wrong. Yeah, but in the minds of the Pharisees, they do everything right. Now, this is not true of all the Pharisees and all the teachers of the law. They get a bad rap in the text, but there are times when the Pharisees are doing really great things and Jesus is talking to a specific segment right here. But what we find out in this moment is that Jesus is putting on the lips of the older son the mentality of the Pharisees and the teachers of the Torah. And this is only confirmed when the older son says to the father, he has squandered your inheritance on prostitutes. This, what Jesus does here is so brilliant. What does he do here? He brings in a proverb. Notice this proverb of what Jesus has connected to the older son's words. Here it is, Proverbs 29, three. A man who loves wisdom brings joy to his father, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. The religious Leaders, they know this passage. It only seems to confirm what Jesus is doing in the midst of this story. And as we begin to connect this all together, we begin to realize, oh yeah, you know what? Jesus is the father. You go, but last week we talked about how how the father represented God. Uh, Yep, Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh. 
And he is loving and welcoming and accepting and giving these tax collectors and sinners, these people who have blown it, who have been far off, but have come near. He is demonstrating the heart of the father. This is the brilliance of what is going on. And when we begin to recognize that on the lips of the older son are the mentality of the Pharisees and the teachers of the Torah, we begin to see how, how layered and how deep this story Jesus is telling is going. And so again, the, the older son is absolutely ripped in the midst of this because of the grace of the father. So let's pick up what happens next. So after he says in verse 30, this son of yours, remember, I don't even want to be associated with him. He's your son, squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. And then notice the father's loving response. My son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Notice this. The father says, listen, I divided the inheritance Everything I have, it's yours. You have it all. And then he says this, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, don't pawn him off. He's your brother. He's part of the family. This brother of yours, we had to celebrate because when this brother of yours came home, he was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and we had to celebrate. And the father has to say to the son, listen, everything I have is yours. You have it all. And when the father says this, and in the midst of the attitude of the older son, we are met with the realization, the older son is actually lost. That's the great revelation here. He's lost. Uh, we could say this just about the, the younger son, is that the younger son represents those who are lost but have been found. It's the older son who represents those who are found but are lost. You see, we've been saying for the last couple of weeks, and indeed this is how we've traditionally called this, is the parable of the prodigal son. But the reveal here is that it really should be called the parable of the prodigal sons. Both boys are lost. One boy leaves because he is lost. The other one, st the other one stays home and is just as lost. And for the older son, he is lost on the inside. He's in the family. He is part of the family. And yet he is lost on the inside. And it begs us to ask the question, why is this happening? What is the older brother's issue? What's the issue with the older son? And I would say that that is revealed to us in verse 29. Notice verse 29 with me. This is where it just really comes to the fore. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. What? I've been slaving for you? <laughs> see what makes the older son lost is that he doesn't see himself as a son within the family he sees himself as a slave. The relationship with his father is really, really fractured. And um, maybe we just put this up. There's somewhere down the line that the intended relationship of the father and son became master and slave. That's the issue at the heart of what we're reading here and experiencing with the story with the older son. Is that somewhere down the line, he moved from son to slave in his mind's eye. You see, a slave mentality is, well, I've got to earn the approval of my master. It's all about earning. It's all about achieving. It's all about making sure that that person is, is, is happy with me because they can do who knows what to me if I don't. It's an earning mentality. And yet that's not what the, what the idea of being in relationship with God is supposed to be. 
It's an issue of, of, of how do we interact with this God? We don't do it as a slave. We do it as a son or a daughter, recognizing that we have a loving parent who will go to whatever extent necessary to demonstrate their love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness upon us. See, again, the older son represents religious people. You could say people within the church, people within God's household. And yet, they are lost on the inside. At another point in the Gospels, Jesus has a conversation with the Pharisees and the teachers of the Torah, and they're, they're talking about some religious things. And, and finally, in the midst of the conversation, Jesus just gets so fed up with their mentality about all these religious things because the religious mentality was well, you do the do's and you don't do the don'ts. It's just all about doing these things and, and making sure that you do all the right things. And it's like Jesus is in this moment saying, you know what, you can do all the right things and still not be faithful before God. I notice what Jesus says to the Pharisees and the teachers of the Torah. He said, uh, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. So Jesus says, okay, you do all the right things. You come to church, you pay your tithe. You don't sleep through the teaching. You pray, you don't cheat on your spouse. You're doing all the right things. And yet you're so distant from God. I mean, that's the, that's the scary part about all of this is that you can just do all the right things and yet your heart can be far from God. And the issue that Jesus addresses here is that your hearts are far away. And that's, and that's what can happen when we just get so caught in kind of a works-oriented mentality is that it all becomes about all the things we do and the things that we don't do. And it just becomes a list of things. And it's like, God, I'm just trying to earn. I'm trying to show how, how serious I am in all of this. And yet Jesus says, like, you, you do all the right things and yet your heart is far from me. You see, when we do enter into these, these disciplines of, of prayer, of, of reading our Bibles, of, of coming to church, of, of listening to teachings, of, of tithing, of doing all of this, that's, that's not in replacement of our relationship with God. It's there to help us enhance our relationship with God. That we do these things so that our heart becomes molded to God's heart and we take on the essence of the Father. And living into a works-oriented mentality um, can be really, really destructive. I would just maybe just say it in, in this way is that when you employ a works righteousness mentality in a grace-oriented home, you can become numb, bitter, angry, entitled, jealous, and judgmental. And here's what I mean by that, that works righteousness mentality. You gotta earn the approval of God. I have to demonstrate that I am worthy to be in this family. Uh, it doesn't work. Because God's household is not based on works righteousness, it's based on grace. And so when you try to mix works righteousness with grace, it's like trying to mix oil and water. It doesn't work. Sure, they may look similar on the surface, but they are two diametrically different substances. They don't go together. And because they don't go together and we try to make them go together, it just leaves us in a rough spot. That literally, if we're starting to employ this, if this is the kind of mentality we have, we can become numb towards God. We can become bitter towards God. We can become angry with God, angry with others. We can become entitled. How does that play out in the midst of this? Well, if, if we're trying to demonstrate like we're earning things, we're, we're achieving, look at all that we're doing. We then begin to say, but God, look what I'm doing for you. Look at all the things that I have done. And yet this happens to my family. You allow this to happen to my job. You allow this to happen here. I'm going through this. Really, God? Haven't I done it? Look at all I've done for you. Look at all the things that I do. And all of a sudden where it's works oriented and we become entitled people. And yet that's not what God desires. That's not what the relationship with the father is to look like. And what's more is that we can become jealous and judgmental that when other people are receiving the grace of the Father, we can become jealous. We become judgmental, why? Because all of a sudden we go, and they don't deserve that. Like, look, look, look at everything that I have done. 
look, look what I am doing on behalf of God. And yet they're still getting the same kind of grace. They haven't earned it. They haven't worked as hard as I have. They haven't done what I have done. And all of a sudden we become jealous and that jealousy morphs into judgmentalism. We become judgmental of other people. And when we become like this, it not only becomes detrimental to us, becomes detrimental to other people as well. A few weeks ago, I came across a a quote uh, from Gary Burge, a brilliant scholar over at Wheaton. And when he wrote this and I read this, I was stopped in my tracks. Notice what he says about when an older brother takes on this kind of a mentality. He just says this. He says, lost sons sometimes have difficulty coming home because of their older brothers. (laughs) That one hurts, doesn't it? that we can actually disparage those who want to come back into the faith, who want to come back into the church. We may disparage them from doing so because we live a very judgmental mentality. You see, this is the life of the older son and what the father seeks to do in the midst of this mentality. Again, read with me verse 31. The father says, my son, He doesn't say, my servant, my slave. He's reminding his older son what the relationship is. And he just says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. He says, listen, you have everything. You have my grace, you have my mercy, you have my acceptance, you have my love. You do not need to earn it. So stop trying to do it. Because when we do not realize what we have, We seek to go after that which we desire and it can actually wreak havoc within us because we try to mix oil and water and our relationship with our father becomes fractured. And when we have a fractured relationship with our father, we have a hard time. In fact, it's nearly impossible to experience, get this, joy. Joy. You see, I think this is the great root of all of this in the story with the older son, is that everything comes down to joy. That that if I had to ask one question for us to center ourselves around in order to synthesize everything and all the interconnectedness with the older son, I would just ask you and I would ask me this this morning, do you have joy? Do you experience joy in your life? Because joy is the litmus test of whether we're experiencing a thriving relationship with God or, we're, or if we're a bit lost on the inside. It's joy. Now, I'm not talking about happiness. Happiness is very superficial. Happiness comes when things are great and it leaves when things go south. Joy resides much deeper than happiness. Because when things go south, when things aren't going as well as we'd want them to, joy is still possible to be present. Joy is a gift from the Father. See, I'm not talking about what we have to be happy all the time and everything needs to be roses and everything needs to be wonderful. What I'm talking about is that joy is available to us at any moment if the Father is the source that is feeding it to us. That if we are living into a thriving relationship with the Father, we can experience joy in any and all circumstances, whether it's good times or whether it's low times. Because joy is the litmus test to whether we're experiencing a thriving relationship with our Father. And if we're not experiencing joy, it's an indication that we might be a bit lost on the inside. Joy. Do you have joy? Is this true of you? Is this part of your story right now? Earlier, I put up this slide about all of these things that happen when we're living into a fractured relationship with the Father, when we're we're missing the grace and the love and the acceptance that is already ours, that we already have, that we're, we're seeking to strive after, and it's a works mentality. All of these things can become part of our story. In my experience, let me just say that I've never met a truly joyful person who lives life numb. 
joyful people are like exploding with joy. (laughs) They have a great sense of joyfulness within them. I've never met a truly joyful person who is bitter, who's angry. I've never met a truly joyful person who lives life entitled. Well, you owe this to me. I've, I've never met a truly joyful person who is jealous and judgmental. I've never met a joyful person who will say, you know, there's a party going on, but, but I don't really want to be part of it. <laughs> you see, all of these become an indication that maybe joy isn't what it needs to be on our life. And joy is supposed to be part of the Christian walk. Notice this fabulous quote from Klein Snodgrass. I love the guy's name. He is a scholar. He's got a scholar's name. Notice what he says about joy. He says, the parable sounds a note of joy that should mark disciples of the kingdom. If the kingdom is present and forgiveness is being dispensed, even if evil is still in the world, joy should characterize those who recognize what is happening. Christians sometimes are not a joyful lot. They either take faith for granted or forget what they have or worse, like the elder son who hears music and does not want to get too close, they are suspicious of joy. Joy is not an optional feature of the faith, nor can it be attained by smiling more and singing louder. It must emerge from an awareness of the mercy and forgiveness of God enacted in the kingdom. And I would even extend that and say, and also enacted in our hearts that when we truly recognize what we have, that we don't have to strive for God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's acceptance, then we can just settle in to the relationship that we have and joy can just begin to swell within us. Do you have joy? Because that's the invitation. The invitation is to experience the joy that the Father gives. And by the way, did you notice how the parable ends? (laughs) Uh, Actually, it doesn't. Sure, there's a stopping point in our Bibles, but the way that Jesus ends the story is that the father and the elder son are out in the field. And the question is left on the table, was he gonna come in or is he not? Because you know the father's gonna head back to the party because the father is a party animal. And that's something that should characterize followers of Jesus because God is a God who is celebrating all the time when lost people are found. And so God is a God who celebrates. God is a party animal. You know God's gonna be at the center of that party celebrating the goodness of his younger son who was lost but has been found and hoping that the older son who is also lost will come and join the party. And really, Jesus leaves this parable open-ended because he basically says to you and I, how are we going to finish the story? Are we going to join the party? Are we going to allow the joy that only the Father give to well up inside of us? Because the invitation is join the party. (laughs) And all of God's people said, amen. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says a word of encouragement. And for some of us, it may well be a word of challenge in light of that message. The author says, let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured this cross, scorning its shame for the joy set before him. The events of the Garden of Gethsemane revealed to us all that he wasn't happy about what was in front of him, but he endured it for the joy set before him. And Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that he now sits at the right hand of the Father. And do you know why he did all of that? It's to open up his arms to his sons and his daughters and say, come on home. I wonder as you listen to the the challenge there, I wonder how many of you are numb. 
I wonder how many of you are disappointed with God because you really needed him to do something and it hasn't happened. I wonder how many of you are struggling with bitterness, with anger, with judgmentalism. I wonder how many of you are even saddened because a prodigal of your own still hasn't come on home. What we're going to do right now is very simply, we are going to come on home. We're going to come to Jesus. This is a moment where we are going to share communion together as a family of faith. We're going to do that by moving. Sometimes in our worship we will sit and the, the elements will be brought to us, but at other times it's only right to enact what the parable tells us to do, to come on in, to join the party. So our servers are going to come down to the front at this moment. There will be servers standing at different sections of the auditorium, also up in the balcony. Those of you who are gluten-free, just at the center, else here on the table, there are gluten-free elements. Those of you who may need assistance, all you need to do is just to whisper to the person by the side of you and just say, please, I'm unable to go to the, to the table today. Would you mind bringing me the elements back? And I would encourage you to do just that. But church, it's really time to come on in. It's really time to celebrate the fact that, guess what? Jesus has paid it all. And he welcomes not just those who are far from him, he welcomes those who may be this morning lost on the inside to just reclaim that joy. So I'm going to pray. We're going to worship together. And when you're ready, just leave your own. Come take the elements and allow that to symbolize you joining the party because God is there waiting for you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the example of your son Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And I thank you that because he did all of that, because you raised him from the dead, he now sits at your right hand interceding for us, sending the Holy Spirit to us, in some cases to renew our joy, in other cases, Father, as a perfect expression of the joy that just guides our lives. And so, Father, we come this morning, and we come because of the cross. And we just pray that as we take of the bread and dip that into the cup and eat, we do that remembering your death until the day your Son, Jesus Christ, comes again in glory. So, Father, we thank you and we worship in Jesus' name. Again, when you're ready, just come up from the rose, take the elements, and just come on in. Join the party.
that his wounds have paid your ransom because he was willing to endure the cross for the joy set before him. We can leave here today as his children. Go in the knowledge that while religion says do, your faith says done. Go in the knowledge that it is finished and live as sons not slaves for the joy set before you and God's people said amen have a great week thank you for worshiping with us we'll see you all next week